Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to today's podcast of Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. The podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. The Read Smart podcast explores the increasingly popular world of nonfiction books and the issues underpinning it, as well as providing a behind-the-scenes insight on this year's prize journey as we announce the shortlist on the 15th of October and the winner on the 16th of November. The Bailey Gifford Prize has rewarded the very best in non-fiction writing for the last 22 years, spanning across diverse fields of history, current affairs, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography, and the arts. Today, we are discussing the prize's long list, which was announced last Thursday. This year's long list reflects an impressive array of non-fiction subjects spanning all kinds of fascinating topics from the impact of Britain's imperial past to how nature reclaims abandoned buildings from the rise and dramatic decline of a famous business tycoon to the genetically modified future of humanity. It's safe to say that our judges have picked out a strong selection of literary reads and each author should be very proud to have made this list. The long list has been decided by this year's panel of judges, the chair, Andrew Holgate, Sarah Collins, Helen Chertsky, Dominic Sandbrook, Johnny Pitts and Catherine Hughes. Today, we are fortunate enough to be joined by two of those judges, Catherine and Dominic. Welcome to you both. Hello. They are... So good to have you both with us. They are joining us remotely, uh, which is most unfortunate, but there we are, uh, sign of the times. Dominic is uh, an historian, author, columnist and television presenter. He's best known for his writing about Britain since the 1950s and has published five books so far, spanning subjects such as the heyday of the 1960s and the Falklands War. His works include Never Had It So Good and Seasons in the Sun, which was adapted for television as the BBC series The 70s. His novel Who Dares Wins, which tells the story of the first Thatcher administration, was described by The Times as absolutely breathtaking and was chosen as the book of the year by many publications, including the Daily Mail, The Telegraph, The Evening Standard and BBC History magazine. He regularly writes for The Daily Mail and The Sunday Times, while also presenting documentaries for BBC Two and BBC Radio Four. And joining us also today is historian and writer Catherine Hughes. Catherine has written several books, including The Victorian Governess, George Eliot, The Last Victorian, and The Short Life and Long Times of Mrs. Beaton, and most recently, Victorians Undone. Art historian and and critic Frances Spaulding has said of her writing, There is seemingly no aspect of Victorian life that Catherine Hughes cannot assimilate and understand from the inside which illustrates her deep passion for this fascinating and complex period of history. For the past 20 years, Catherine has been literary critic at The Guardian. She also writes regularly for the New York Review of Books and the Times Literary Supplement. She is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and the Royal Society of Literature and Professor Emerita of Life Writing at the University of East Anglia. Thank you both so much for joining us. I'm going to start by uh, asking a very general question, although the entire uh, podcast this week is going to be about the long list. Just both of you, first of all, Catherine, let's start with you. What, what makes a good nonfiction book for you? It's got to grab me. I think that's the single most important thing, but the way in which it grabs me could be quite different. So in other words, we've got books here on the long list that are very, very deeply researched. People have spent ages in the archives and brought forth treasures. In other cases, it's more of a personal journey. People have perhaps delved deep into their family history or their cultural history and woven that along with their their own memories. Uh, sometimes it's, it's something entirely different. It's a sort of geographical exploration. Somebody goes to an a bit of the world that one hasn't thought of for a long time and find something absolutely amazing. So I I don't think it's a single thing. I just think that when you see it, you know it. Dominic, what about you? Yeah, I completely agree with Catherine. I mean, there are lots of very different kind of genres on this list. And, you know, we read dozens and dozens of books of that were spanning everything from history to science. So you can't really, you can't alight on one criterion other than to say, I suppose... I mean, Catherine and I both do a lot of book reviews for the newspapers, so we read far more than is healthy. And um, the the truth (laughs) is, you know, 
it's just got to be fun, Razia. It's got to be not boring. And, and <laughs> I know this is a terrible thing to say when you're a judge of a nonfiction prize, but, you know, there are a lot of boring books published every year. And, and what we were looking for, I think, I'm sure I speak for all the judges, we were looking for something that was just a pleasure to read. Now, that might be because of the quality of the writing, or it might be because the ideas were invigorating and bracing and challenging, or because the personal story was engrossing or whatever it is. But there had to be something that kept you, you know, when you've got 50 or 60 books to read, there has to be a reason to keep you turning the pages of this one. And so that's what I was looking for. Well, let's uh, let's uh, bear all that in mind uh, as we hear your thoughts on the 13 books that you've chosen after reading dozens. Uh, these are going to be discussed in alphabetical order. Uh, we'll start with uh, Arifa Akbar's uh, Consumed, A Sister's Story, uh, a very personal book by Arifa. Let's uh, start with you again, Catherine. Uh, what did you think of this one? What, what, what were the sorts of things that the judges thought made this one deserve a place on on the list? Well, I think in a sense, it it went against all my expectations. We've had so many memoirs around illness and around families in the 70s and 80s that at first when I looked at it, I just thought, I'm sure it's great, but, you know, I've, I've read this book before. But, oh, no, I hadn't. So once you start, it's not just about one thing. Uh, Arifa does talk about the uh, the way in which her family comes over from Lahore in the 1970s and is relocated to one unheated room in North London. We learn about the family dynamics. We learn about the fact that the father has what appears to be a, a mental illness and can't accept his oldest child. And then we gradually go back and we unpick and we realise that Fazia, the elder daughter, Arifa's elder sister, there's something very, very sort of gone wrong mentally. She feels very, very, very upset and damaged and wounded by the family dynamics. And then the present time story, as if that weren't interesting enough, is the fact that she has recently died, uh, Fazia has recently died of TB, or consumption as it used to be called, in a, a major London teaching hospital. Not the kind of place where you think people still die of tuberculosis. And so what Arifa does is is is, is blend or plait all these things together. So there's a big cultural narrative about what is TB. And she she goes to watch a, a production of La Boheme, you know, where uh, Mimi dies at the end from consumption. And she realises, you know, consumption is not a fun romantic illness. It's absolutely vile. She takes us to the sort of deathbed of Fazia, her sister. We go to Rome to see where John Keats breathed his last. And we also have a lot of uh, very interesting sort of racial politics in Britain of the 70s and 80s. I just think it's exquisite the way it blends all those things together. So it does sound very much like a book that starts with the with the micro and 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 makes us or places us in a in a much uh, bigger bigger picture. Let's move on to the next book, Islands of Abandonment: Life in the Post-Human Landscape by Cal Flynn. That 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 sounds as though it's something that's incredibly weighty and something that we should all be considering, given how much we talk about the the potential of our own uh, existence uh, disappearing. What were the discussions? around this one Dominic well uh, it does sound a weighty subject but I think that's doing the book an, an injustice actually because it is a, a profound book about it's about the landscapes that sort of have been left behind I suppose by humanity so places like you know abandoned industrial landscapes and so on or Chernobyl is I guess the most famous one um, but the I think the judges felt that it was written with this sort of ethereal kind of melancholy brilliance um and it's a sort of meditation on 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 what we've done to the world but also the 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 sort of it, it goes into the places that we have kind of left behind and it sees hope in them actually um so it's a more it's a more optimistic book you know it's not all sort of you know post-soviet bleakness and stuff it's a much more optimistic book and it's beautifully i think the judges felt that it was beautifully written um, which is true of a lot of the books on this list, and that it wasn't it by any means a sort of, you know, we didn't want to have books that kind of felt like they were, you know, the equivalent of a cold shower and kind of homework <laughs> and porridge. Um, and th and this book is not, which might might sound like that from that from the description of it. It's not like that at all. It's much lighter and more surprising and and more interesting. 
I, I suppose, I mean, oh, I think back on my time as a judge um, of this prize a few years ago, and and, and quite often, uh, Catherine, we would say that, you know, is this one of the books of the year that you would want to press into the hands of people that you know? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I agree with Dominic, because the last thing one wants, believe me, is a sort of bossy book that makes you feel very, very bad about your life. And I've often found that with nature writers, especially ones that, that look at the kind of state we're in now, you get a sense of such hopelessness and badness that, frankly, you wouldn't press into the hands of your worst enemy. It just It's just a sort of self-lacerating op- um, exercise. Dominic's absolutely right. What's so extraordinary about this book? It's so optimistic without being Pollyanna-ish or silly about it. And that the great hopeful news is that actually once we retreat, we, humankind, nature comes in and repairs itself and reconfigures these spaces in ways that we could not possibly have imagined. I mean, basically, it's a book that tells you, uh, yeah, we have behaved very badly, but there is still a chance. Nature is bigger than us. Wonderful to have something optimistic in the list. Dominic, uh, let's turn to you next uh, on the book by uh, Tariq Hussein, Minarets in the Mountains, A Journey into Muslim Europe. Yes, yeah, so this is um, this is a lovely subject, actually. So it's a, a guy called Tariq Hussein. Um, it's published by Brat, who normally publish travel guides. Um, and what he does is he and his family go on this journey through... They're basically going through what used to be the Ottoman Empire in Europe. So um, Kosovo, Bosnia, Albania, North Macedonia, Serbia. So a part of Europe that I suppose we heard quite a lot about in the 1990s, but we don't really hear about anymore. And um, he's traveling in the footsteps of of Ottoman travelers, of sort of Muslim travelers of the past. But he's also going to to mosques, to sort of Bosnian towns, to bridges that were the sort of um, the the architectural legacy of the um, of the Ottomans. But also, these are genuine kind of Muslim. These aren't immigrant communities by any means. These are these are communities that have been there for you know more than five hundred years in some cases. Um, so it's it's a it's a Muslim Europe that is not the Muslim Europe that you normally see in the newspapers, um, and it, and it's written, it's it's a very it, it's a deceptively light book. It's a serious subject, but it's written in quite sort of breezy um, style, which is quite a contrast to some of the other books on the list. So it's probably more immediately accessible to readers who don't normally read kind of weighty nonfiction. But it's a fascinating part of the world. Um, and it's a fascinating way of doing it, actually, a, a Muslim writer going to Muslim communities that so he's not going, you know, he's not seeing them as kind of the other, if you like, as exotic. They're not exotic to him. I mean, they're the, they're the norm, as it were. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really fun book, actually, this one. I, I love the idea of um, giving a much bigger picture of the history of Islam, given what we we think we understand about the presence of Islam in in European countries today. That sounds like one that I'm I'm definitely going to turn to. Let's turn to the next one. Um, this is a, a a book by a German writer, Harald Jana, translated by Sean Whiteside. Aftermath: Life in the Fallout of the Third Reich, 1945 to 1955. Uh, Catherine, just outline for us what the discussions were about this, because this has been fated in Europe, this book, just got the most fantastic reviews. I think we were all blown away by the fact that um, the story of post-war Germany, which we thought we knew vaguely in outline, is not actually what happened. I mean, what Jana does, amazingly, is just go to the moment when Germany is falling, just those those months and and those few years afterwards. And instead of finding or describing, he is himself uh, German, describing uh, a nation that is consumed with guilt and horror at what it's done, what's been done in its name, wanting to make reparations, what he finds and describes is uh, Germans saying, actually, we were the victims too. We didn't want the Nazis. I mean, that that wasn't us. And uh, they're just, they, they're sort of tone deaf in a way that they're so caught up in their own suffering, which I don't doubt was very great. I mean, a, a great many Germans were killed and others were interned. But they have no compassion left over for the six million uh, Jews who are lost in the concentration camps, for instance. Uh, they feel that at one point, somebody says, Do you know, I don't think I don't think Europe really likes us. To which the answer is, well, 
Well, no, they, they, yeah. they don't. They think, the Nuremberg, they think the Nuremberg trials are just some sort of oh, bit of theatre put on by uh, by the Allies. Um, it has nothing to do with them. So it, it's extraordinary because I, I certainly grew up with the idea that Germany was desperate to make a sort of moral and ethical amends. And that's certainly been true of the, of the Germans that I've ever met. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm younger than Jana, but uh, this was a different story. It was quite, quite shocking. And it's although it's, it's obviously he's very critical of it, uh, there's nothing um, vituperative about it. The, I mean, this, this is the generation of his, his parents, and he's just trying to understand what, what went wrong. How, how, how was it not communicated to you? I, th- I think we all found it, even those of us who, perhaps like Dominic, know a great deal about this period, fa- felt that it was a new story being told. Uh, it definitely was a new story, Catherine. I think as well it's a, um, it's a great example of panoramic history at its best. So it's a, it's a complete picture of Germany in the ruins of the Third Reich. It's the sort of, it, as Catherine says, it is the story of, of what, often a very, fa- a, a, always an interesting story, I think, for historians to tell, the what happened next story. So the main, the story we're all familiar with the Second World War, it's over, Hitler is dead, but what? how, how do they clear up all the rubble? How do people get back, you know, how do men and women sort of um, rebuild their, their marital lives? How do... How do these towns get back on their feet? How do they get any work? How do they, you know, make money? How do... so it, it it paints this sort of total picture of German society in the ten years afterwards. But as Catherine said, the most fascinating bits of it are how did the Germans deal, sort of intellectually and culturally, with with what had happened, what they had done, and what had happened to them. It, it, that sounds like it's such a, as you say, Catherine, this idea that what we think we know about post-war German society is, and Germany is held up as an example, which of course it clearly is of a country that um, that is willing to confront its past, but clearly that happened much, much later. Yes, I, th- I think that you're absolutely right. It, it, we, we grew up perhaps with the idea that Germany was kind of model for understanding and uh, rethinking about the past, owning up and moving on. And what we're presented with here is just the absolute opposite. It's a kind of culture of of whining complaint that is so excruciating. I have to say that I sort of felt all my body tense as I read it because you just can't believe that people could not understand what had been going on. Sounds like a, a really uh, important book in terms of adding to the, the subject that we know already. Let's move on to the next one called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty by Patrick Radden Keefe. Uh, let's, let's just hear what the judges said about this. Uh, t- tell us... Tell us about the story, because we've heard so much about uh, the opioid crisis in the United States and and also the whole um, the way in which the Sackler dynasty has been tarnished uh, in recent years. Uh, Dominic, just outline for us the discussions that took place talking about this book. Well, actually, this is a book that we, we didn't talk about very much at all because we just all agreed it was brilliant. Um, uh, so <laughs> we just true. basically said, yeah, it's great. Yeah, put it in. Um, uh, that That's the sort of high level that our discussions were at. Um, um, so basically what this book does is it, I, I suppose if you were really sort of um, talking about it very simplistically, you'd say it weaves together two different things. One of them is this story, as you say, of the opioid crisis in the United States, the way in which people became addicted, in particular, to a painkiller called OxyContin, um, from which the Sackler family made tons of money from the 1990s onwards. Um, and the other story is the, the portrait of the Sackler family themselves. And, and it definitely has, the, the weird, in a weird way, the, the story it reminded me of was Succession, the TV drama, and the sort of, you know, this incredibly rich, successful family um, and the sort of machinations within the family for sort of preeminence and to prove that you were the person who's who's making money for the family and protecting the family's honor and stuff. But it but it's the it it is a, a brilliant example of American nonfiction writing at its best. So Patrick Radden Keefe is a new uh, New Yorker writer, and he's just an absolute master of setting the scene, of knowing when to kind of pull the focus, of when to go in on something very small, and then when to give you the big picture about when to change the subject. It's just an absolute masterclass in in riveting journalistic writing. And, and it's hard to imagine that story being better told, in my view. 
I, I wonder if we can just pause for a moment and just focus on the writing of nonfiction, because you mentioned both of you at the outset, you know, the, the, the qualities that judges are looking for. I, I wonder, Catherine, how important the way in which a story is told uh, is to you as a judge. It's absolutely preeminent. Um, for me, the, the, I'm not, as Dominic said, like him, I, I read an awful lot of non-fiction books and, and review for the newspapers. And you would be amazed, I think, at how badly so much non-fiction is still written. It's in so the true. sense that the story may be fantastic, the research may be immaculate, and that it is told with all the kind of plodding, kind of just doughty sort of journeyman prose of, I don't know, of a sort of instruction manual. It's terrible. And there's a sort of feeling that it doesn't really matter. I think it matters hugely. I think it matters as much as a, a fiction writer. I, I, I simply can't divide the two things. It seems to me that the information doesn't really exist until it is, as it were, delivered in a particular way. And I think what this author does very, very well, actually, I mean, it's, it is journalism. Um, but that doesn't have to mean something rather dry or rather kind of just phoned in or, or, or something like that. It's just beautifully done. It's a very clear, transparent kind of prose. So in other words, I don't think one's always looking for sort of Baroque frills. I don't think it has to be immensely curly, the writing. I just think it has to sort of serve the rest of the book. It is the thing on which everything else depends. Not, it's not the last sort of icing on the cake. Well, you know how I always think of it, Catherine. It's a bit like a chef who says to you, "I've got brilliant ingredients, but I can't cook." Yeah. Um, you know, you want a you want a chef who can actually cook, and and so you want a writer who can actually write. And I, I probably agree with you. I mean, my instincts are probably more Spartan than than some. I don't like stuff that is massively overwritten or or sort of straining too too hard for profundity. But I think there is just a sort of, as you said right at the beginning, actually, Catherine. You know it when you. When you see it, you know, you open a book and you read the first couple of pages, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, and you can just sort of tell, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm in the presence of somebody who really knows what they're doing and I'm really enjoying this and it's bowling along. And then sometimes, as you say, you read something and you think it's a photocopy of manual, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's talk about the next book by um, Eben Kirksey, uh, The Mutant Project, Inside the Global Race to Genetically Modify Humans. Now, we have all had to become science literate very, very quickly over the last 18 months. And, and the need for clarity and accessibility when it comes to dealing with issues to do with technology seem all the more important. So, so tell us a little bit about this, uh, this book, Catherine. It's written by a cultural anthropologist, so an academic, but as I understand it, not actually a scientist. I think he's a professor of, of, of ethics in, in American University. What he does is set out to, uh, on a sort of long road trip, which takes him around the world, to explore what this incredible technology that the Chinese have developed, which is, goes by the lovely word CRISPR, which makes it sound like chips, but it's not that, it's CRISPR. Uh, it's an incredible technology, which means that you can, as it were, re-engineer uh, an embryo. So, you, as I understand it, you can if if an embryo was conceived and it, it had unfortunately some sort of congenital illness disease, you can take that out with this CRISPR technology and and sort of do a little bit of stitching uh, and create a, a healthy child. So, on the surface, this seems like a universal good. I mean, who would not want that? Who would not want to see the end of all sorts of congenital conditions. But what he discovers as he speaks, he talks more and more to people, he goes around all the conferences where the best scientists in the world are gathered together. He finds that there are extraordinary um, variety of opinion because what's happened, there's a, a, a much celebrated Chinese scientist called Dr. Hay who has produced two um, babies uh, two girl babies who have been, as it were, stitched together from the best kind of chromosome material. And there's a, there's a huge backlash because, of course, what is this but genetic engineering? While it might be absolutely fine to get rid of horrible diseases, is it all right to, as it were, demand that you'd like quite a tall child with blue eyes and, you know, and so forth? So poor Dr. Haig is, is sent to prison for three years. And in a sense, the that's the central, I think, dilemma of the book. How can this man who was a hero now, you know, is a sort of pariah? And yet everything was done, I think, with the best of in intentions. 
It really, really does sound like a fascinating story. I remember covering this, um, particularly the day the Chinese announced uh, uh, that particular revelation. And and there was so much discussion about whether or not this was ethical and how rules and regulations in other parts of the world meant that it was it was never going to happen anywhere else. So so where else do we go in this book? It's, It's not just China, right? No, he goes uh, all around the world and he looks at um, other, I mean, he, he he does a lot. Of, it's a very human book. So he speaks to uh, people who are themselves suffering from very unpleasant, painful congenital illnesses or have children. And he, he asks them, he's trying to get a sort of sort of philosophical consensus uh so it it's not a polemic he's not telling one story it's not even one of those sort of you know this is a warning from history it's it's simply an attempt to try and bring together this immensely complicated subject and and make sort of human truth of it and i have to say quite honestly you know I'm not a science person. So this was not a book that I thought I was going to fall on, you know, rapturously. And I was absolutely gripped. Let's stay with you, Catherine, and talk about Kai Miller's book, Things I Have Withheld. How would you describe this? Is this just pure autobiography? No, it's not, actually. It's uh, Camilla, of course, is both a poet and a, and a novelist, Very, very published very fine work in both genres. This is sort of, I, I mean, he calls it a series of essays. I suspect if it if it was fiction, you'd, you'd say it was a collection of short stories. But it's it's not that. It's a it's a collection of sort of non-fiction essays, which I think is a really interesting form, and it's one that quite a lot of very very fine writers are experimenting with at the moment. Uh, and so, for instance, one chapter is written in the form of a letter to James Baldwin, uh, the African American writer and and civil rights commentator. Uh, another one is him just imagining uh Kai Miller imagining a dinner party in Jamaica, which is where he was his parents were originally from. And he imagines the discussions between uh white, black and Indian people and how they might tussle with this question of of race. So each chapter, as it were, has a completely different set of tools and methodologies. And that makes it, I think, really, really interesting. It's very kind of flexible writing. But of course, because Miller is at heart a poet, it's also beautifully written. It's got a lovely kind of lyrical quality to it. Did you have conversations, uh, and Dominic, this is addressed to you as well, when you were talking about the long list of, of, you know, how hard it is to try and compare what really is not like with like, right? So we've we've already heard uh, both of you talking about, you know, seven books um, so far that, that are really quite different in terms of how they're written, you know, put the subject matter to one side, but just the the sensibility with which the writers who have written them come at their subjects. I think that's definitely true. Um, I think you're... You, you, you're never really comparing like with like because the writer is trying. The writers are trying to do different things. I suppose the only thing I'd say is that would be true of any. I mean, it would be true of a fiction prize, in that they're all, you know, that they no, no two writers are ever really trying to do exactly the same kind of thing. Um, and so I suppose what it comes down to, I mean, a lot of it just comes down to to ultimately to gut preference. I think. Um, there are some subjects that grab you and some that don't. There are some writers. It doesn't. It, it doesn't. I don't mean to impugn the writer at all, but sometimes they can be a brilliant writer, but they're just not for you. Um, so, so it is always a bit difficult. And I mean, it's a. We all know anyone who's ever been involved with prizes, whether winning them or judging them, you know, a prize is always a little bit arbitrary. Um, but what you try to do as judges is to sort of come together and to learn from from one another's you know viewpoint and to to come at books in a different way and and, 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 but it is all I mean it can never be anything other than subjective I suppose well how did uh, how did John Preston's fall the mystery of Robert (laughs) Maxwell grab you (laughs) well this is um so some of the books on this list are very weighty this is not a weighty book um it is a it's great fun I mean, that's the it, it's a it's the story of an absolute monster. I mean, a fascinating man, Maxwell, newspaper magnate. Um, he was, of course, an immigrant. He'd been involved in the Second World War, and then he becomes one of the gr- grotesques of sort of British post-war life. And John Preston has great fun, um, sort of peeling back the. I mean, there's so many layers of untruth 
in Robert Maxwell's story because he told so many stories about himself. And there's some appalling behaviour. I mean, terrible behaviour. Of course, Maxwell is most famous. I mean, the one anecdote that most people know, which is is it's not really certain whether this happened or not, is that he would urinate off the top of the um, of his newspaper <laughs> building onto the passers-by beneath. And there's tons <laughs> of stories like this. I mean, it's great. It's a great read. So John Preston, many people will know of him as the writer of The Dig, or as the writer of a very um, English scandal, the story of Jeremy Thorpe. Um, and he has great fun with this story. I mean, it's actually, it might have, it's one of those books that when you read it, you might think, well, it seems a bit light. But often those books are very hard to write, um, a very accessible, very entertaining, fun, but also serious account of somebody who had this kind of outsized role in, in British cultural life. Was it one that you enjoyed, Catherine? I absolutely adored it. And I think Dominic's completely right it, it's a book that you you might if you weren't thinking clearly think well I think I've I think I know all about that I think I've read that but actually you haven't John Preston is an amazing synthesizer of material but and I think it's really important to say this he's done a lot of original research I mean he spoke to three of the Maxwell children which is kind of pretty extraordinary that he's had that sort of access lots of access to Rupert Murdoch who is of course Maxwell's kind of nemesis and kind of you know, a sort of mythological other. Um, he's he's found lots of material that hasn't been used before. So it's, this is not just a question of him cutting and pasting and putting a funny title at the top. It's it's very serious. But because he is such a brilliant writer, he somehow makes it just read as as an exciting exciting as a novel. I mean, we all know what happened to Maxwell in the end. We know he fell off his boat. Um, it's not like there's any big surprises. But they kind of are. It's it's thrilling to read about it. I I think it's a it's a it's a wonderful book, and we haven't had that much um, Maxwell biography since the nineties. Actually, since since he actually fell off the boat, so it did feel very interesting to have this story to kind of return to this story after about twenty five years or so. And in fact, introduce him to a, a whole new generation of of readers, I guess, who who don't have any memory of of, of what happened and and what he was like. Uh, let's let's move on to um, the next book, Blood Legacy: Reckoning with a Family Story of Slavery by Alex Renton. Catherine, let's uh, stay with you with this one. Um, I mean, there are overlaps with the next book, Empire Land um, by Satnam Sanghera, but I, I want to discuss each of them separately. So let's start with Alex Renton's book. What, what, just first of all, tell us, tell us about this very personal story against a backdrop of something very, very large, obviously. Yeah, Alex Renton is a British journalist who comes from a, a reasonably privileged background, uh, not aristocratic necessarily, but just very privileged. And not you don't have to go too far back to 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 discover uh that his great grandparents um actually had huge interests in uh Jamaica i think it was or tobago um basically they they had they 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 traded with enslaved they let me start this again basically uh they used enslaved labor uh to make an enormous profit i mean that that's the sort of ethical tangle at the heart of the book um, and what Renton is doing is coming to that information uh, after it was around the time of Black, Black Lives Matter and trying to, as it were, work out what kind of role his, his family had in, in all this misery and what he can do or should do or, or might be expected to do about it. The great strength of the book is that, of course, he has access to this um, huge tranche of material left behind by his relatives, uh, letters in which they casually discuss their, their enslaved um, labour force. They talk kind of quite casually about the violence that's going on and whether they might sell or buy. Um, that's a very rich stock. I've not, I've not heard that story told through that kind of material before. So I think that's what's extraordinary about it. We're, we're perhaps quite used to the big macro picture of uh, the terrible atrocities that, that went on, but we don't often get the sort of personal views and, and also the very intimate personal stories of the, uh, the, the white people at the heart of this very difficult narrative. And quite a different perspective from Satnam Sanghera, Empire Land, how imperialism has shaped modern Britain. Uh, Dominic, what, what outline for us, first of all, what you thought of this book and then just the discussions that took place in, in, in the judging process? Um, 
Well, I think everybody who read this, I mean, the judging process on this book was, was very straightforward. Everybody who had um, read it was very impressed by it. So Satnam Sangira, he's a journalist for The Times. Um, he's a Sikh from Wolverhampton. Uh, he's British. Um, but obviously his family's roots are in the Punjab. And um, it's a sort of, it's not a history book. Um, it's a sort of a meditation on what it is to be um to be some to be a Sikh in Britain um to be somebody shaped by M by the British Empire uh but he didn't study it he says in in school um it wasn't really discussed and he's sort of looking at it now and saying you know what how do we grapple with um the empire and its legacy and what stories should we be telling about its about its history about our history what is is there such a thing as our history our imperial history and I, th I guess what is one of the things I really liked about this book are that this is a subject that generates a lot of heat and a lot of very strident, um, quite monolithic views. And a couple of the nice things about it, it's very measured, it's very nuanced, it acknowledges different viewpoints, but also he doesn't always know, I think, what he thinks when, before he starts writing, before he starts talking to people and trying to find things out. So you can almost feel Satnam Sangira you know, puzzling things out in his mind and, and, and holding sometimes two contradictory ideas in his mind at once, which is something that's very rare, actually, on this subject. So I think it's a really nuanced book, and that made it really refreshing um, after the sort of often quite um, excitable debates of the last couple of years. Catherine, do you want to jump in and, yes. and give us your view? I mean, the, the thing that struck me about the, the book... Um, Satnam Sangera's book is is that it's very very good on reminding us about the unevenness of empire, the fact that there wasn't just one monolithic British empire that happened sometime in the olden days uh, and was the same everywhere. You know, we've had series of of, of empires. We've, we we traded with uh, Jamaica for sugar in in the eighteenth century. Then there was the East India Company. Uh, then later there was eighteen seventies. There was a scramble for Africa. Um, in other words, the empire falls differently on different locations. It's 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 highly highly uneven, and always at some point somebody is saying, "I'm not sure that this is right." So those kind of, kind of critical voices have always been there, but it's often quite hard to hear them, as I say, because it's so immensely complicated. And the tendency, I think, is to have this very monolithic view of something called empire, which is just very bad and is always the same. And I, I really, really admired his ability, as it were, to make us think in a slightly more uh, subtle and complex way about what it is we're talking about. Let, let's talk about the second book on this list of 13 that uh, has uh, not been written in English. The translation is by Sasha Dugdale. It's called In Memory of Memory by Maria Stepanova, a, a Russian writer. Um, some of the things that I've read about this suggest that this is not non-fiction, that this is a novel. Certainly one of the reviews referred to it as a, as a novel. Um, Catherine, what were the discussions around this one? I think we were very interested in uh, the methodology. It's a kind of scrapbook, uh, bricolage. In other words, Maria Stepanova goes, uh, she, she's born and brought up in, in Russia around the time that uh, communism, communism is collapsing. She She does a sort of archaeology on her family's history she goes she does that thing of going up into the attic and going through the tin boxes and trying to work out what what happened what she doesn't do and i think this is maybe where the suggestion that it's a novel has come from is she doesn't try and um research into the gaps she doesn't try and when she doesn't know something she she says i don't know and she she kind of tries to imagine what it might be like but she makes it quite clear but what she doesn't do is kind of try and hide the gaps, which is what non-fiction writers often do. They use a kind of sleight of hand, so that it's only afterwards you realise that actually that was full of holes. She makes a virtue of the holes, if, that, if that's possible. And I think that's, that might be why some reviewers were a little bit confused about what the genre was. Um, and Dominic, what, what's your view of, of that kind of playing around with... Um, I suppose the the genre of nonfiction. Yeah, well, I suppose I mean the genre of nonfiction doesn't have to be fixed, though, does it? I mean, I think you can um, experiment with it. A great example of that a few years ago, uh, a writer I admire a great deal called Francis Spufford wrote a book called Red Plenty, 
about the um, Soviet Union in its sort of 1950s, 1960s heyday. And that was a book of non-fiction, but actually he inserted into that kind of short stories and things and fictional characters. Um, and it's and it, and it it seems a very mad project, but it but it worked. I thought brilliantly. So I think you can play with the the boundaries of nonfiction. I mean, that's one of the things that this book obviously does. Miria Stepanova's book is, you know, she's experimenting with the form. I mean, there are lots of if you think of Svetlana Alexievich, her books. I mean, again, she's slightly playing with the form because she has huge sections of of sort of oral history or of people remembering things. Um, and I wonder whether the fact that some of these are, are books in happen with books in translation, perhaps in Britain, we're a little bit conservative in some ways. And that um, there are some cultures where there are some societies where people are, are much keener on, on sort of messing around um, with the form of nonfiction. But I think there's a tendency. I mean, Catherine was said, said earlier about the sort of, you know, bad nonfiction and sort of um, photocopy and manual prose. There's a tendency sometimes to be very conservative and just to think it's just A, B, C, D. And I think some of the the some of the best books on this list actually are the ones that experimented and tried to do things a little bit differently and thought very hard about exactly how they were going to convey this sort of massive information to the reader. We have got two books still to discuss. Um, let's turn to the next one, Francis Wilson's um, Burning Man, The Ascent of D.H. Lawrence. Uh, Francis was a guest on the uh, on this podcast uh, not so long ago when we were talking about biography, and she did she did refer a little, although she didn't want to give too much away about her, her forthcoming book. Um, Dominic, let's stay with you. What is she trying to do here? Because an awful lot has been written about Lawrence, of course. Well, she's slightly sort of rehabilitating Lawrence, I suppose, because people have been very down on Lawrence for about the past 30 years. Um, but but she's trying to tell Lawrence's story differently from the way it's commonly told. So commonly, when people read or write about D.H. Lawrence, they're immersed in the kind of working class industrial landscape, um, the sort of Nottinghamshire landscape from which he came. This book starts much later. It starts in, I think, 1915. Um, it's divided into into three parts that are sort of modelled on on Dante's divine comedy. So there's this sort of conceit of, of Lawrence modelling his life on, on Dante. Um, so he's in he's in Britain, then he's in Italy, and then he's in the United States, largely, in sort of um, the southwestern United States. And he's in this place called Taos, and he's associating with all these sort of weird characters. Um it's a brilliantly written book, this one. I mean, this is one of those books where when you just start reading, you think, you know, this is really, really well written. Um, every sentence is a joy. The characters are hilarious, eccentric. I mean, Lawrence, obviously, famously a very strange man. Um, it, but it makes you want to go back to Lawrence's fiction because you're you're kind of working out what's making him tick and about how he's interacting with all these sort of wacky people that he meets. Um, but she's also she t has a lots of interesting things to say about his books and about his short stories and so on. And and after it, almost every chapter, I had to sort of physically restrain myself from rushing off and dipping into the rainbow or or women in love or whatever. Uh, and I think that's the great mark of the success of this book, actually, that it really makes you fall back in love with D.H. Lawrence. I'd love to hear what you think about about the book itself, Catherine. But 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 also th this idea that we're again going back to the judging process, which is so fascinating. That you know, Francis Wilson is a hugely accomplished um, uh, biographer and 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 writer, and and there are books on this list that are first books by writers. And just let's address that, and then tell me what you thought about the book. I think that's what makes the long list so fascinating is, as you say, the, the space for all kinds of writers. So we do have some first books, some second books, and then Francis Wilson, very accomplished, a very established writer. I think that is really pleasurable. I think that's really nice. In a, in a sense, I sort of feel the long list is... For me, almost the most exciting part, because I'm, I hate the thought that we're going to have to, as it were, whittle things down from, from here on in. So I think there's a lovely sort of capacious feeling to the long list that allows all sorts of voices to be heard. I agree with Dominic. I think this is a fantastic book about Lawrence. I'd say one thing that really interested me was Frances Wilson isn't that interested in the novel. She quite deliberately says that she doesn't think that 
Lawrence's best writing is found in his novels. She actually wants us to look at the poetry, at the essays, at the literary criticism, and sometimes just at real sort of throwaway things he did. There's a, there's a preface he wrote to somebody else's memoir that she actually thinks, and, and I think I agree, is the best thing that Lawrence ever wrote. Likewise, she doesn't want to plough through the same old characters that usually crop up in Lawrence's biography. And there's a sort of cast list of, of players who usually come in and out. She goes looking for people that we haven't really come across before. There's a, a very strange man called uh, Maurice Magnus, uh, who I'd never heard of, who actually for a while becomes Lawrence's most significant correspondent and, and person, almost. Uh then when we get to uh, the southwest of America, there's Mabel Dodge, this dotty, dotty American um, heiress who is, uh, well, frankly, she's mad, uh, setting up a sort of alternative <laughs> community. Uh, and Lawrence is being really, really mean to her. Now, these are things that we haven't quite seen before. I think Dominic's absolutely right. It's not just about, you know, there's trouble at the coal pit and it's that sort of women, in, you know, clever school teachers. Um, lady school teachers trying to break away from an oppressive North Midlands uh, working class culture. It is a kind of completely different Lawrence. And I think for that reason, it's it's immensely brilliant. So last but definitely not least, because we're doing this in alphabetical order, let's talk about Free Coming of Age at the End of History by Leah Ippi. Dominic, let's start with you. What did you make of this? Oh, I loved this book, um, Razia. I really loved this book. So um, when I describe it, some listeners may say, gosh, that, that doesn't sound very exciting. Who wants to read a book about Albania in the 1980s? But it's absolutely brilliant and unbelievably um, uh, deceptively well-written and accessible. So Leah Ippi is a professor at the London School of Economics, um, and she has written... It's, it's a book that is both a memoir of her childhood in Albania. So Albania, obviously, this last redoubt, really, of Stalinism in the 1980s, cut off not just from the West, but from all the other communist countries as well. So this weird isolationist country where the ch it's so sort of poor and so cut off that the children, they don't swap, they don't even swap kind of Western bubblegum, they swap Western bubblegum wrappers um, in the school playground. These are their sort of treasured possessions. Um, so the first half of it really is about that world and the lies and the hypocrisies and the way the lies that her family have to tell her and themselves to kind of survive. But then the second half is what happens when all that falls apart. Um, and so she goes from one kind of unfreedom to another kind of unfreedom because capitalism comes to Albania. And um, far from entering this age of sort of milk and honey, everything completely falls apart. Everybody invests their money in pyramid schemes. And they they all collapse. The economy collapses completely. And then there's virtually a civil war in 1997. Um, so she uses this story. And she's a child and then a teenager. So she's remembering all this. And she's telling you this in a very, very engaging, you know, who doesn't love kind of childhood memoirs when they're well done? Um, but it's also a meditation on what is a good society, you know, capitalism and socialism and freedom uh, and only as you kind of get to the end, you see how clever it is that she's worked these kind of concepts into this story um, in this very sort of deceptively light way. Catherine, what did you make of this? I absolutely adored it. Uh, I think Dominic has probably said brilliantly all the things that I'm going to say. Uh Again, I, I I've always been fascinated by Albania. I always always I used to look at look across at it when we were kind of in Greece and just what 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 what's life like there. So it it was just this hugely pleasurable revelation to know actually what was what was going on. But as Dominic says, it's immensely sophisticated politically, uh, because as the author moves out, she comes she comes to Italy to be educated for her university education she starts to have arguments and discussions with western european people of her, her own age who have such mad fantasies about what it must be like to grow up under a, you know the last redoubt of stalinist communism and she's sort of amazed at their at their naivety uh, and their lack of sophistication about actually life had some extraordinary things going for it and, and she she describes a sense of community and mutual flourishing that just goes completely once once capitalism enters um so i think 
Dominic's absolutely right. Only at the end do you realise that as well as reading a completely gripping personal narrative, you've also been made to think about the different kinds of uh, freedom in life and, and different kinds of socialism and communism. Again, not just reducing it to one kind of hegemonic kind of splodge on the landscape, but actually trying to think, well, what, what remains of that which is really good that we could borrow from and use and take forward? I don't envy uh, both of you at all. I mean, I've so enjoyed listening to you speak about these 13 books, but your task ahead is now to to whittle these down to, to, to six. And, and I wonder how you're both feeling about that, Dominic. I'm feeling great about the books. I'm terrified of the other judges, obviously, uh, and, their, <laughs> and their dreadful decisions. Um, but uh, no, no, I mean, it's a pleasure, actually. To, I mean, it will be a shame to lose, what, seven of these books. Um, but they're all really good books in different ways, and it's and, and I, instead of thinking about the, you know, the loss of the seven, I'm thinking trying to th- remind myself that six of these books are going to go through to the shortlist, and you know we're going to have six, whichever we choose, we're going to have six amazing books. Catherine, I'm actually slightly, slightly dreading it because I loved all these books, and I think they're extraordinary. I remember once quite a long time ago, I got on the long list for the prize. It it was the most exciting, thrilling moment of my professional career. I know how lovely it is. I wasn't put on the short list. And so I know how disappointing that feels as well. And I don't really want anybody to feel as disappointed as I did. Um, But Dominic's right. We've got to concentrate on the fact that we'll end up with six amazing books that we can be very, very proud of. Um, You know, there's just no sense that we've got to argue or explain to other people why we chose these six books i mean that's whatever we choose and we don't know yet we haven't had the meeting i know they're going to be brilliant and also i suppose it's a it's a good time to remind people that um the 13 are the lists that everyone should start with so you're 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 basically giving us uh and you're opening a door to 13 extraordinary books that you have spoken with such passion thank you to both Catherine Hughes and to Dominic Sandbrook Thank you to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their support for this podcast. Do make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at BG Prize for all the latest on future episodes and news regarding the prize. You can also sign up for our newsletter through the website and uh, get updates straight into your inbox. The Bailey Gifford Prize rewards excellence in non-fiction writing and brings the best in intelligent reflection on the world. This year, the 2021 prize shortlist will be announced on the 15th of October and the winner of the prize will then be announced on the 16th of November. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction Podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation and produced by Four Communications. <laughs>